Let me paint a picture for you, and I want you to visualize yourself right in the middle of it, okay? At some point in history, on some island location in one of the world's oceans, whatever, it doesn't matter, you are a slave. You are a slave. And you are suffering under the weight of the absolute worst that word implies. That's your situation. But after a very long time of suffering, a very long time in those shackles, something has changed. A man has sent a letter stating he will come and buy you and all your fellow slaves out of your miserable bondage. He's going to buy you out of that bondage. Moreover, beyond that transaction, this man has also given you a promise. When he pays that price, he will bring all of you to the mainland and provide you with everything that you need for a new life. Talk about an amazing turn of events. Sure enough, one day the man arrives. And he does, in fact, sign a transfer agreement and he pays this enormous price required to secure your release. Though you guarded your heart and you tried to temper your hopes, everything is happening just as the man wrote. Everything is happening just as he said. But then, suddenly, tragedy strikes. You learn that the man is dead. Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the disappointment, worse still, the despair you would face after learning about his death? Everything would come crashing down. Everything that you tried to guard your heart and temper your hopes about and saw coming to pass and gave yourself too fully comes crashing down. But within days, there is another unthinkable development in the story. The man, this man who promised you new life and paid to make it happen, this man is alive again. Wait, what? He's alive again. And it's right there in that moment when you hear that news that hope is rekindled. It's right there when anticipation, when expectation begins to burn brightly inside of you. The price has been paid. The transaction completed and you are free. You are free, but you are still on the island. You're still there. The man's ship to the mainland has not yet arrived, but it will. And you've begun this brand new life, but it isn't completed. It isn't completed. Take that picture, if you would, and bring it with you as you look with me at Luke chapter 21. This 
beautiful Easter morning, we will be focusing together on verses 25 through 31 of this chapter. Verses 25 through 31. This is one of the chapters, as I mentioned, from our Bible reading plan this past week, Friday's reading. Before I begin reading in verse 25, it's really helpful to note the context here. Note the context. Earlier in the chapter, you can scan right back up to the beginning of that chapter, chapter 21. Look at verses 5 and 6. In those verses, Jesus has foretold the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Verse 6. As for these things that you see, that is the impressive temple buildings, the days will come, says Jesus, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. His disciples then go on. If you start moving down into chapter 21 a little further, his disciples then ask about the timing of these tragic events. That would have been a sore spot, sensitive spot in the heart of any Jew. They'd suffered once, like I mentioned, 586 BC, the destruction of their temple at the hand of the Babylonian armies. Here, Jesus is foretelling a similar fate. This temple will be destroyed as well. Verse 7, teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Natural question, you'd ask it, I'd ask it. When is this going to happen? So although often misunderstood, this chapter, it is that conversation right there that defines the context for the passage this morning. That's the proposition made by Jesus This is the question being asked. So this places boundaries on our discussion this morning in terms of the context. So look with me at where Jesus takes the same conversation a little further down in verse 25. He says this, And there will be, my disciples hear me, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. And on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, in fact. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. That conversation about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple just got a lot bigger and broader, didn't it? It just got a lot bigger and broader, right? Now Jesus is talking about the powers of the heavens being shaken. Whoa. And the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Double woe. And the kingdom of God coming near. What exactly is happening here? What is going on here? Well, Jesus is clearly connecting the end of the temple with the end of the present age, or as some might say, the end of the world. 
But there's a problem with all of this. A huge problem with all of this. It really is. There's a problem. The temple was destroyed exactly when Jesus said it would be destroyed. Of all the foretelling that Jesus Christ did, he was never wrong. Always right. Spot on. On the money. Jesus declared in verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And that's exactly what happened. Less than 40 years after Jesus foretold that destruction, it came to pass. It took place. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Roman legions, the Roman armies in 70 AD. In fact, if you look at verse 20 of this same chapter, that's exactly what Jesus said. When Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. He knew decades before it happened that it would happen. And it did. Spot on exactly as he said. So if the temple was destroyed just as Jesus said, what about his return? What about the end of the age? Didn't Jesus connect these events together? Yes, he did. But not in the way that we think. Not in the way that we think. Moving backwards through the passage, let me give you the main text that we saw this morning. We looked at 25 through 31. Let's move backwards through that passage. Let me give you three simple ideas that I hope you will help you make sense of this. Take a look here at number one. First of all, there are definitely signs to look for in terms of God's plan. Jesus says there are signs to look for in terms of God's plan. Jesus provides a parable to that effect in verses 29 and 30. I think you understood that parable, right? Did you get the idea there? Just as trees give us an indication that summer is coming, that it's near when they begin to sprout and blossom in the spring, we know what's next after that? Summer, right? Spring, then summer. We know that's what's happening Just like that, Jesus tells his disciples that there will also be signs of the kingdom's nearness. What should they look for? Verse 31. When you see these things taking place, what things? Well, just read from verse verse 8 all the way down to verse 26. Verse 8 to verse 26. That will give you those signs that will be taking place. Now, some of those I'll warn you. Some of those I'll warn you. When he talks about wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence, Jesus is not giving them super signs to be super excited about. He's simply saying the world will continue in its upheaval. Don't let it throw you off. That's all he's saying. Right? Don't look for these things in the newspaper. (gasps) Earthquake in Turkey. Jesus is, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He may, may not. He's just saying those things are going to happen. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't worry about those things. Those are just the beginning of the birth pains. Those things will continue to happen. There's more. He lays them out in verses 8 through 26. Those are all the things to look for in regard to the, in regard to the timing of what? Remember verses 6 and 7? The timing of the temple's destruction. That's what they asked. When will the temple be destroyed? When will these things take place? This is what he's telling them. 
Now, you may be scratching your head a little bit here because you may not quite understand, wait a minute, but what was Jesus saying? Like he was using some pretty wild language there. Take a look at number two, point two. Let's see if we can understand this a little bit better. Second, Jesus speaks here in the style of an Old Testament prophet. He's using language, as he often did throughout his ministry, but especially here talking about the messianic age, the age to come, the end of the present age. He's using the language of the Hebrew prophets. Let me give you some passages. I want you to think about what they say and what they predict. This is Isaiah chapter 13. Take a look on the screen. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. That's Isaiah chapter 13 verses 10 and 13. Kind of sounds like what Jesus was saying. Look at Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Look at this next verse, Ezekiel 32, 7. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. There's that focus again on the heavens, on darkness. Look at Haggai 2.6. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? Did you hear all those? They weren't any really different from what Jesus was saying, right? In verses 25 and 26. But actually, all of those are judgment oracles that already came to pass. They already came to pass. Their fulfillment was ancient because they were directed at ancient nations. The first in Isaiah was Babylon. The second in Isaiah was Edom. And the third in Ezekiel was Egypt. And the last verse is related to the restoration of the Jerusalem temple under the Persians some 500 years before the time of Christ. God would shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament often use this kind of hyperbolic, earth-shaking and universe-shaking language to describe massive, divine shake-ups in the geopolitical order of their day. We're just not sensitized to this language. We, We don't think in these terms. We don't speak this kind of language. This was the language of the Hebrew prophets when they talked about what God was do, would do in his wrath and the messianic age. He spoke in the, they spoke in this way. And the language is so similar that I believe Jesus is doing the same thing here in verses 25 and 26. A divine shakeup is coming to the geopolitical order. Okay, a third point, a third point. Take a look on the screen here. All of these signs, third point to make sense of this passage, all of these signs and shakeups alert, alert, are meant to alert us to his nearness. 
They're meant to alert us to his nearness. This is really the most important point. If you leave this morning thinking about anything, please take the word nearness to heart. Clutch it, hold on to it, treasure it, meditate on it. Nearness. Did you notice how that word is repeated here? Once at the end of verse 28, you see it? Once at the end of verse 30, you see it? And once at the end of verse 31. Three times. As a geopolitical shakeup in first century Israel began to unfold around them, Jesus instructed his disciples to let those troubling events drive them toward vigilance and not fear. Stay awake. Be on guard. Be ready. There's lots of ways he says it. Right? He even gives specific kind of instructions. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't be like your ancestors in 586. Don't hold up in Jerusalem where they eventually had to eat their own children because of the siege. Get out of the city. Go to the hills when you see those armies. You see, this is very practical for these men. They needed to hear exactly what Jesus was instructing them here as a geo, that geopolitical shakeup, that first century shakeup in Israel began to unfold, Jesus is instructing his disciples here. As their world felt like it was coming to an end, they were called to, verse 28, straighten up and raise your heads. Don't you love that? Straighten up and raise your heads. That language, think about what that language seems to imply before the instruction comes. What's the person doing? Straighten up and raise your heads. Before the, the command comes, they're doing what? They're bent over. Maybe with their head hung low. What, what does that convey when you see someone like that? Bent over, head hung low. The reality of their coming Redemption, the reality of his coming kingdom is meant to inspire a radical change in posture. Straighten up and raise your heads. So what does all of this tell us about the timing of Christ's return? That's the, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? What does this tell us about the timing of Christ's return? Well, when we take the whole New Testament into account... I think the only thing that we can say for sure is that after 70 AD, after that temple time frame given by Jesus himself, and verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, whatever that means, take a look on the screen. This is our summary. Jesus, this is what we can take away. Jesus and the reality of his coming kingdom has drawn near and remains near to us in a way it never has before. Let me say that again. Jesus and the reality of his coming kingdom has drawn near and remains near to us in a way it never has before. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark's account of this very same teaching, this expression, this expression is preserved. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
That's an interesting way to describe it, isn't it? He's at the very gates. So it's not just the word near. There's actually kind of a visual image given to, to reference or help us understand proximity. He's at the very gates. You're in the city. He's at the very gates. He's right there. Nearness. And this reality of nearness was so precious to the first Christians that you can find it all throughout the New Testament in passages and writers as diverse as Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 8 of his letter. And then Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Nearness. All right. Old Testament prophets the temple in Jerusalem, the Romans in 70 A.D. It's all really interesting. But what does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with you sitting here this morning on this beautiful Easter? What does it have to do with you? With any of us today, especially now? Brothers and sisters, Friends, here's the connection. We are those island-bound slaves. We are those island-bound former slaves, I should say. We have been bought with a price. That's what the word redemption means. Remember that from our passage, redemption? That's what the word redemption means. And the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead isn't simply a fantastic curiosity or confirmation, just simply confirmation of his divine identity. It's absolutely that. But it also means Jesus will finish what he started. Let me say that again. Jesus will finish what he started. When Jesus cried, it is finished before he died on the cross, it meant that transfer agreement had been signed and the price was paid. But it did not mean the completion of the implementation of his finished work. We're not taking anything away from the statement, it is finished. But we know from the New Testament, the completion of the implementation of that finished work is not done. You see, we are the ones waiting for that ship. We are the ones waiting for the ship that will take us to the mainland, or in the words of Hebrews eleven sixteen, to that better country. To that better country, that place Jesus has prepared for us. And it's not simply heaven. That's not what the Bible says. It's the presence of God filling a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. That's his glory that we all fall short of. But now what do we do? We rejoice in the hope of that glory. The hope of the glory of God. According to Romans chapter 5. The scriptures confirm that right now we have a new life as those purchased, as those set free. That's wonderful news. But we are also patiently waiting. The Apostle Paul wrote about this very thing. Take a look on the screen. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
We're groaning inwardly. We're waiting eagerly. Why? We're waiting for the adoption as sons. Adoption as sons and daughters. What does that mean? Well, specifically, it's the redemption of our bodies. This body, your body, that in all likelihood, if things go the way that they seem to be going, and they've gone for all of these (laughs) countless eons, your body will decompose, it'll be in the ground, it'll be ashes in an urn somewhere, whatever happens, but God will revive you. He will bring you, He will put you back together in a powerful new way that you will reflect and be like your glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That is the redemption of our bodies, that our bodies too, in all of their aches and pains and their wearing down and their death and decay that they suffer, our bodies too will share in the grace of God, the transforming power of God. That's still coming, isn't it? That's still coming. Don't yearn for heaven. Yearn for your body in heaven, your body in the new heavens and new earth. Paul called you yearning for heaven, you being naked, just a spirit. Yes, I desire to part and be with Christ. That is far better, absolutely, than this place any day of the week. But to be unclothed is, is, is to be spiritually naked. That is, it's not complete. We're not what we're supposed to be, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We long for this, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, writes Paul. Now hope that is seen is not hope, right? It's by faith for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What is Easter, brothers and sisters? What is Easter? Take a look. Easter is powerful proof that Jesus will finish the rescue he began. I don't know if you think about it that way, but it's strong in the New Testament, this theme. It's very clear in the New Testament. Easter is powerful proof that Jesus will finish the rescue he began. The resurrection looks backwards and forwards, doesn't it? His victory over death confirms that Jesus really did pay that price effectively. His sacrifice was effective. That's looking back to the cross. But the resurrection also looks forward, confirming that Jesus is alive and well today. Therefore, his plan to rescue and restore all things is on track and cannot be stopped. Just as he could not be stopped even by death. But God is calling you to ask yourself in all honesty this morning, do I believe this? Do I believe this? No, not just believe like you assent to the fact of it, like it's an idea in your head, right? In our Gospel Foundation study, we talk about this little phrase, I believe in Adolf Hitler. Well, if I say it like that, I believe in Adolf Hitler, I may be telling you something simple. I believe he existed, right? I believe he was a historical person. I believe what he did. But if I came to you and said, I believe in Adolf Hitler, you would be like, elders, uh, quick meeting, impromptu meeting. (laughs) It's time to boot the pastor or at least bring church discipline against the pastor because there the word believes, the way I'm saying it, the word belief speaks to this idea of embracing with a kind of trust the philosophy of what that man espoused the poison, the 
the hates, the ugliness. Flip that around into something beautiful and true and wonderful. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Not just the mental ascent, not just, yeah, I believe it because it's the right answer. I believe it because that's what my parents believed. I believe it because it makes me feel good on the inside. No, you really believe that a man came back to life who was dead. And not just any man, a man who did miracles. Not just any miracle, right? Not just miracles. He boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God and he, he revealed that he was, in fact, God in human flesh. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you do, you'll see it. It will change you. It will change you. It can't not change you. And that's what we're talking about here. This, re- this resurrection confirmation of the plan of God. This morning, you may be bent over by the heaviness of life. This morning, your head may be hanging low as you battle with shame and guilt or as you battle with fear and doubt. But God's word to you this Easter is the word declared by Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. It is this, straighten up and raise your head. Straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. It is. Absolutely. Does that mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow? He might. I can't say that. But since as the Apostle Peter, this is Peter, a good Jewish man, using the language of Psalm 90, as Peter reminds us in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, take a look at the screen, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, we cannot know when Jesus will enter through those gates by which he stands, even today. Because brothers and sisters, he's near, he's at the gates. Maybe he has his hand on the handle. Maybe you're beginning to hear the creaking of the wood as that gate begins to open. But the Lord is at hand. He is near. Nothing in his predictive timetable has not come to pass. It's happened as he said it would. But Bryce, it's been 2,000 years. To God, it's been two days. Don't tell God how to count time. Don't tell God you know better about his timing. Because as Peter reminded his readers, that timing means everything in terms of life repentance, the opportunity, the window of mercy for that yonder sacred throng that we want to be part of in eternity. We can't know the exact timing, but we can know that he is there even now and therefore very near with full and final redemption for us and very near with a kingdom that will change everything. And no one and nothing can stop his nearness from becoming a face-to-face reality as Paul wrote, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Face-to-face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Shouldn't that inspire us? 
Shouldn't that inspire us? Again, Easter is powerful proof that Jesus will finish the rescue he began. He lives even now. That certainly means, in the words of Hebrews 7.25, take a look. That certainly means that he lives. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives resurrection life. He lives to make intercession for them. So what is that? That's God's call to you this morning that if you have not turned to Christ, right? If you have not turned back to Christ, come to him because he always is working to draw and to save. He can save you even now. His intercession will never be ended while we exist in this world before being glorified, before being purified and made whole once again. That is certainly true. But in the mind of the author of Hebrews, it also means this. Jesus lives also means this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's Good Friday, he sat down at the right hand of God. Easter Sunday is implied here. He sat down at the right hand of God after the ascension, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he's not just going to be a high priest forever. He's actually in this time of waiting until everything lines up with the Father's plan. Father knows the day and the hour, doesn't he? Father knows the day and the hour. This plan cannot be stopped, brothers and sisters. If you have been redeemed by the blood, that is, you've been redeemed by the offered up life of Jesus Christ, then your full and your final redemption is drawing near. Be encouraged. Even when you are struggling and tired. Even when people are hurtful and things seem so uncertain in your life. Even when it seems like our world is coming to an end. Your redemption is drawing near. Nothing can stop it. So brother, sister. God's word to you this morning. Straighten up and raise your head. Straighten up and raise your head. Keep walking. Walk again in that joyful confidence and that in that empowering hope of Christ's promise. Your redemption is drawing near. His words have come to pass and his words will come to pass. Your redemption is drawing near. And when all of this does come to pass, what will that full and final redemption look like? It will look like Easter. It will look like Easter. It will mean resurrection. Listen to this beautiful description. And there's so many in Scripture. But this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul says, For the Lord himself, that's the Lord who's very near now at the gates, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When's the last time you encouraged a brother or sister with these words? It's a good idea, isn't it? 
arm yourself with this passage. Even if you, do, if you don't feel like you can't memorize it, break it down into f- four or five words. Christ will come back and we'll be with him forever. Encourage one another with these words. So be encouraged this resurrection day, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Easter is powerful proof that Jesus will finish what he started, just as he said, that he will complete the rescue he began as Jesus promised in yet us in yet another gospel. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He will. He will. John 14, verse 8. So let's thank him now for these precious and very great promises. Amen? Amen. Pray with me if you would.